Okay, so welcome back to Reflection as a Service. We're here with our second episode. My name is Paul Merrill, and I'm here joined by James Jeffers. Um, we're really excited to bring the second episode to you guys. We were thrilled to have 14 crazed fans um, for the first episode so far. Uh, and I'm pretty sure that's like my mom and 13 others, James. I, yeah, I, it's, it's yeah. probably my mom in there as well. <laughs> well that, okay, so our, our moms and 12 others. Maybe my um, wife. Oh, okay. All right. Your wife too. So anyway, so obviously we have a cult following here and we've just got to keep this up. But uh, Reflection as a Service, the name of the podcast, and we're here to basically talk about software development, uh, software engineering, uh, automated testing every once in a while, and then especially business entrepreneurship um, type ideas. So James, um, we didn't get a chance to talk much about what you do last week. Yeah, mostly uh, I do uh, consulting for folks that've got uh, large sites that are built in Rails, Ruby on Rails. Uh, I work with a couple clients to sort of get them from a monolithic code base into something that's not legacy code, so something that's got tests in place, something that's a little more solid. Um, and I've also helped some folks build some sites from the ground up using Ruby on Rails. And I'm exploring other technologies now too, like the Phoenix framework, which is a Elixir-based uh, web development framework, uh, but essentially I just help clients, you know, create software. It's got a big impact, um, and I've also have done training for folks to get their staff up to speed on things like test-driven and behavioral-driven development. Excellent, and you're available at CodeProvidence.com, right? That's correct. Cool. Uh, my company, Beaufort Fairmont, focuses on uh, test automation. We write software to test software. Um, when your team needs automated testing suites and frameworks built, consulting for automation projects or training and coaching to introduce automated testing to your team, we can help. We'll meet your team right where it's at. Uh, Beaufort Fairmont, our exceptional software engineers, work with a variety of open source tools like Robot Framework, Cucumber, Selenium, WebDriver, and many others. We're proficient in C Sharp, Java, JavaScript, Objective-C, and others. Call us at 984-244-2313 or email us at info at BeauftFairmont.com to start start automating your testing today, and that's what my marketing person makes me say, James. So let's get started. We wanted to talk about a couple things um, today, and I think the number one thing um, I wanted to bring up the concept of time and how my uh, concept of time has changed uh, due to the types of businesses I've been in and how uh, and and entrepreneurship and, and how that has changed my perspective of time. And secondly, I think you wanted to bring up and talk about hiring uh, folks to do work. So I think the, the specific title was hiring, devs hiring devs. Is, is that right? Yeah. 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 So we, and then we may get into class, uh, chat clients a little bit here. So um, if time allows. So first I want to bring up time and how, oh, and also I promised Mary Thorne on the sep second episode. She's the author of the three pillars of agile testing along with Bob Galen um, Mary's going to join us for episode three, so she'll be here as soon as we can record again, um, hopefully in a couple weeks here. But uh, first, let's get into time. So the, the, kind of to frame the conversation, James, my feeling on um, on the way that I view time and the way that I do things to be more efficient with my time, I feel like it's changed a lot from my last employer until today, which has been several years. Um 
And I was wondering if, if you feel the same way and kind of wanted to maybe walk through that with you. Yeah. And who was your last employer? <laughs> um, it's well, been a while. It's been a while. It was in, um, it was probably in about 2008 and, uh, it was a, it was a smart grid technology group. Um, and I think, you know, at the time I, I had, I had tried my first company out. I had tried how to geek on.com yeah. and it didn't, it didn't work. And I think I realized during how to geek on that when you're starting something from ground zero and you're putting your own few hundred or maybe, you know, few, few dollars into it. Um, the only asset that you really have is your time and how you use it. And so then going back to, to work for, for other folks after that and talking with other employees and working with clients, I realized that my perspective of time had changed at some point, and I know it's very different now. Yeah. Can, Go ahead. I was I was waiting for you. Okay. Yeah, I think I think how I thought about time, at least as far as like how you use time to earn money, it definitely has changed a lot. I think for a long period of time, I don't think it was like I had a wrong idea about time, but it was at a certain level, like I would call the, the ground floor of understanding like, oh, I'm going to surrender uh, an hour of my time doing this job, for example, uh, you know, working at a grocery store when I was a teenager, uh, you know, doing system admin work in college. It was just all about time. And, you know, when you're younger, you, you generally don't generate that much value relative to everybody else. So that's about all you can do. You can say, here's some of my time. You take it off my hands and in return for some money. And I think I kind of never really got beyond that until probably after the first dot bomb. And uh, suddenly I was looking around the landscape and there were a lot of unemployed software engineers. And I was sort of thinking about, oh, maybe maybe I'm not going to spend the rest of my life hacking on uh, C++ to make a living. And yeah, they, started, they fired all of us. <laughs> they, it was. I, I remember it well. <clears throat> I remember, uh, you know, it was like months were going by and there was no job leads. And my wife's like, are, are you even looking? And I said, yeah, I am. And she's like, well, what's some of your skills? And I'll look out online for you. And she found like two job listings across the entire country. <laughs> she's like, oh, I see. <laughs> so, yeah. So, uh, you know, I suddenly got to thinking I need to figure out something else, right? And, and I began to realize that, you know, if, I think I think the way I phrased it was um, if I'm not going to make any money or not much money selling uh, my labor, then maybe I can start selling the products of my labor, which would be software. And so once you start thinking about it that way, then you're like, all right, well, you know, if if you've got to invest, you know, uh, money or resources, uh, capital into getting a product you can sell, you know, you you want to be able to 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 you to efficiently deploy those resources and get get to product as quickly as you can and that's you start thinking about time as as like a lever and so you know it's like where are you going to spend it well you want to spend it at the point which you can generate the most leverage and that's how i think about it before i really put a, a solid value on my time and really started valuing my own time and the time of others because i really don't think you can value the time of others until you value your own but um, in, the first thing that kind of was a, a red light or, or a warning light for me was in the late 90s and the early 2000s when there was this huge dot, dot com thing going on. And they had this concept of uh, 
of work-life balance. Do you remember that? I've, I've everybody, I've heard everybody, this. yeah, everybody's talking about work-life balance, and what they really meant was we're going to put a gym in the office building so that you can spend all your time here. <laughs> That's what they meant, right? Yeah. And, and and I remember something was just odd about that. Like um, I, they'll pay you a salary, but they want your whole life. And then I remember signing these like NDAs and these NDAs would be, they would say things like anything you ever developed during the time of your employment, blah, 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 is ours. And we're taking all of it. It's like, well, how do you take the things that I spend my time on when I'm not even using your computers, I'm not using, you know, any of your resources whatsoever. It's not related to your industry. It's not related to how you make a, a profit. And that's when it kind of started sinking in for me. And then later on down the road, as my life progressed and I had different priorities in my life, um, I realized that I valued time differently. And I remember somebody uh, one time asking me um, to, to travel, and I had no problem traveling. Um, the thing was, I wanted to make sure that the other person understood that you're asking me to be away from things that I really care about, and you're asking me to do it without paying me for that time, because they're not going to pay me for my flight time. They're not going to pay me for sitting in the airport, right? I mean, they're not going to pay for while I'm in the hotel, not with the people that I care about, right? Um, and that's kind of when it really, it really started sinking in. And then um, the, the, probably the biggest thing was was starting to work on my own and starting to try to go out there and actually make money on the street um, you know, with your own business, with my own business and realizing that I need to either be billing for something, working on something that is, has, I've already sold, um, or finding the next client. That's what, where my time needs to be spent in terms of my business in order to make my business work. And so anything that wasn't those three things, uh, needed to fall by the wayside. And I can't tell you once you start prioritizing like that, how many meetings, I would go to at a client site that just didn't matter. There was no reason for me to be there. And I mean, I know you've, you've felt that way too, but suddenly it all becomes really, really clear. And you realize that there are people, there are people who understand how time works and people who don't understand how time works. And I, you know, I'm sure there are people who understand it a lot better than I do. I know that I'm only at the beginning of that learning curve, but uh, it certainly cleared up a lot of things for me. Right. Yeah. I mean, um, I, I think you and I both had the same conclusion about, being in a corporate environment where we've been exposed to people that either they don't understand the value of time or they put such a high value on, you know, not, uh, what's the right way to phrase this? Not taking chances by not following strict procedure and protocol. So the meeting to them is just how you do things. To not have the meeting would be really strange. And it doesn't really matter if you have people there that, that shouldn't be there. Or that there's nothing. I mean, there's nothing to be decided in the meeting. We're just here to check boxes. They'd much rather have the meeting than do something else, right? Yeah, and 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 it, I mean that's the way it is sometimes. I mean that's just the only. If that's the only thing you know, then that's what you got to do, right? Yeah. I mean, we, you can't you can't blame anybody for ignorance. And I mean ignorance in a very objective fashion, not in a negative undertone. Just that one uh, when when people don't know a different way to do things. Um, one of the things that was really interesting to me was the first time somebody helped me realize that just because I did, just because I scheduled a meeting for an hour, didn't mean it have to it had to take an hour. Right. Like if we, if we can decide something in the first five minutes, then let's be done and move on with the rest of our work. Yeah, and now, I, I, and I know that uh, I think we're on the same page as far as like, okay, you know, time is valuable. Let's not uh, let's not do silly stuff that's going to waste it. And we understand there's like 
there's an, there's a big opportunity cost that we have to pay every time we we do invest our time in working for another client or uh, you know j just doing anything even even unpaid work for projects that we think are important. But um, outside of of kind of putting a price tag on that, I mean, have you carried that over into how you've thought about uh, the cost for your services or work that you've done for other people, other other folks? Yeah, I mean, if I'm, I mean, it's it's natural, right? I mean, if you have if you have two different clients at two different rates, it's pretty easy to know which one you're gonna try to focus on, right? Yeah. I mean, so yeah, I mean, how you how you build things, I don't. It doesn't help me personally, and it doesn't help my clients to build two clients differently. Um, and if it's if it's for building automated testing suites or automated testing frameworks. Um, I don't know. What did you What did you want to say about that? Well, uh, you know, I think that's this is kind of why I decided to uh, start researching pricing, and you know, what were the options? Because I, you know, pretty much everyone was like, "Well, billing by the hour is the way you do it." I mean, that that forces you to say, "Well, you know, that that my time is worth X number of dollars per hour," uh, and it's kind of seductive because if you charge a high rate, I mean, you're like, well, I'm going to log my 40 hours and that's it. But you really can't, I mean, that's, that's a very static, uh, uh, position as far as like leverage goes, because you're, you know, there's, like you said, there's only so many number of hours in the week, right. That you're going to spend on stuff. That's not like your family or right. sleeping <laughs> or, you know, everything else. Right. So, you know, 40 hours, that's it. You, you really can't, you really can't affect the amount of money that you can make other than making sure you're just logging those hours. And, you know, when I started looking at that, that's, I think that's why I started getting interested in, well, is there a way that I could price what I do that's not just based on an hourly rate? Yeah. Uh, and, you know, it's not, and that's just not one-sided, right? I just can't say, well, I, I'm going to create this magical thing and it's going to be worth tens of thousands of dollars and you just have to pay it no matter how little time it takes me. But it also kind of makes you start to focus on, okay, so if it's not going to be based on your time, what is it going to be based on? I don't know. I guess the other thing here is when we talk about packaging something up and putting a price on one particular set of deliverables, you have to define those deliverables really, really clearly um, in order for all that to work. And that's something that I've struggled with in terms of automated testing. I have not struggled with as far as training and consulting. Um, but I think it leads into the second subject really really easily because that's kind of what you wanted to talk about when you were talking about devs hiring devs, right? Yep. <laughs> so um, I think, you know, once you, once you're looking at, okay, so, you know, either the job has to be done, right? Either I can do it or you can find someone else who can do just as much, uh, you know, can, can basically deliver this, the same work. You're not going to, in other words, your, your value add for doing the work is not that much greater than somebody else. Um, but what you're adding to the project is from a more like a management perspective. You're kind of getting everybody organized. You're making sure the work's delivered. You're handling everything else. You know, at that point, you're like, well, you know, it's like I, you're starting to run out of those hours, right? So then you start looking around for, I need some help. And that's where you can look at somebody who, like I said, you're, they're going to do just as good a job as you can on some tasks that, honestly, if you're going to do it, that's a waste of your time. And it's if a waste of your time. If not better, sometimes. If not better, right. And, my, and I've got to... Yeah, my first site was a Drupal site, and people asked me, "What well, did you build it?" And it's like, "No, I don't. I don't. You know, the last time I used PHP was in college, and uh, somebody else is going to do a much better job with that than I am." 
Right, and uh, I, I got a client that I've been working with for about 10 months now, and uh, about three months into the project, I was noticing that you know I was really struggling with the the CSS, and because the site was getting to a point where the user experience was getting complicated to the point where it was quickly outstripping my my limitations at, at CSS and uh, design and layout. And so I, I went to the client and I said, I, here, I got a proposal for you. I know somebody who is a crackerjack uh, CSS person uh, and is interested in doing some, some extra work. And I think for the price of, you know, of the few hours of hiring them, I can bring them on. And not only are they going to knock it out of the park with a lot of this stuff, but it's also going to free me up to handle all the rest of the infrastructure on the site making sure that, you know, the back end is working nicely, that the site's operating properly, that, you know, I can put time into developing features, basically everything that's not CSS and styling. And, uh, yeah, they agreed. And uh, it was it was a big win for everybody involved because for all those reasons. I mean, they, they are fantastic at CSS, which is an area that I'm okay at, but they're really good at. And um, that allowed me to pour all of my focus and effort on, not having to do that, but doing the other stuff. But, you know, right. that was an easy hire, right? Because I'd worked with the person before. I kind of had seen their work portfolio. I, I knew how good they were, and I could personally vouch for them. But I think it gets a lot harder when you're looking to hire somebody and you're like, I, I you don't know the person. And so then what do you do? You're like, well, uh, you know, if the project's small enough, it's not like you can do a lot of experimentation. Like if it's for... If you're working for Bigco, this is one tactic that I've, I really like is you can see if you can get the person to come in as a hourly consultant, you know, for three or four days, and uh, you kind of guarantee them that time so that they'll come in, and you just start working with them in earnest, you know, and you kind of see what the capabilities are and how they work well with the rest of the team, and you know. You mean I, for like inter if you're working at Big Co as an employee and you want to hire somebody, this is one. This is how you prefer to do it. Is that right? If, if I could get my way, yes. And I've only okay. seen this done a couple of times, not because I didn't think it was effective. It's just getting getting that arranged seems like it's like pushing a boulder up a hill. Uh, but I've the couple of times I've seen it used, people have decided pretty quickly that the person wasn't a good fit, even though in the initial interview they were like, "Wow, we really want to hire this guy." Uh, and you know everything in those two hours looked great, but when they got them in, they started to uncover uh, either issues like um, the attention to detail wasn't what they expected, or the person just had a couple rough edges on their personality, and you know it wasn't a good compliment for the rest of the team. And they just kind of said, "We can't hire this person as a full-time employee. It's just it's just not a good long-term investment for them or for the other person." Uh, and on the other hand, I've worked with a couple of clients where. You know, they were kind of hesitant to go for a longer engagement because they didn't really, they never worked with me and they didn't have too many personal references for me. Right, I could refer them right. to, to folks I've worked for. Uh, but as a new consultant, and not with a consulting relationship with these older employers. Um, so I said, well, look, here's the deal. Why don't I come in for two or three days? You know, if, if it's clear that it's not going to work out, you can just pay me for the time that I've spent and that's it. Uh, but we'll get a chance to work with each other. And uh, we'll see if it's it's working out. And that turned into a really long engagement with a with a client, and and that was just because I gave them a chance to uh, kind of see what how I worked. And to me, that's like a far more reliable way of figuring out, uh, you know, and uh, of you know trying to see is this person going to work without having to go for the you know the time and expense of 
you know, filling out the paperwork for making a full-time hire. Yeah. yeah. Try it before you buy. Yeah. yeah. And I think contract to hire does some of that too. It's just that a lot of times uh, you, you start looking at the payoff of the contract rather than whether or not, I mean, from, from the business's perspective, you look at the payout of the contract versus uh, looking at whether or not that investment of time into that individual will help you determine whether or not they're a good fit for your organization. Yep. Um, but yeah, it, it seems like there was more that you wanted to talk about with this, though, because we were talking about this earlier this, this week. And, um, it, you know, one of the things, and I've hired a number of different uh, vendors for things over the last few years. And one of the things that I've noticed with technical folks when I've hired them is that they have um, some of the same issues that I've had in the past, which is things like, um, and, and you know, I've been reading that Three Pillars book because uh, I, I'm looking forward to having Mary Thorne on, on the next episode. Um, and one of the things they talked about in there was courage is one of the requirements for an agile workspace, um, agile workplace. Yeah. and. You know, courage is something that I totally lacked a while back. I know the first Agile shop that I went in, the first day, we sat down and started doing planning, and they were asking me to make estimates. And I was—I didn't even have enough courage to make an estimate because I was worried that they would hold my feet to the fire for it or I'd get conked on the head if I didn't meet my estimate, you know? Right. Um, and what's funny is when I'm working with vendors and we're trying to put things to, together for a particular deal. It seems like the technical folks have much less courage than a lot of the other folks. Um, and I, I think that that's kind of built into our nature, especially with developers. Maybe uh, I think we tend to be very risk averse. And, um, and I think sometimes that makes setting up those deals more difficult. What do you think? Like I want to hire a developer to get something done, like develop yeah, a website. Like, yeah, yeah. Uh, interesting. Uh, do I think about risk risk averse? Yeah, it could be. And I think, well, I mean, I've got a very recent anecdote <laughs> about uh, trying to hire somebody else to develop a website that we wanted to get done, uh, and I didn't talk to the person that they hired to do the work directly. So it was more like a design firm that kind of said, oh, we can have a value. We can have an add-on that we'll, we'll develop the site for this other price point. Um, let me think. Um, yeah, I, I think a lot of people that are, especially if they're new, right? They're, they're not, they are kind of risk averse, right? Because I think they just don't want to rock the boat and they just kind of want to get their feet, you know, get their, get their footing solid before yeah. they start uh, striding out. And I, and I've watched a couple people going from pretty, you know, just being very junior in an organization to basically like an, you know, an arrow drawn back by a bow. They've been shot out of the organization because their ambitions kind of launched them into that, you know, the the outer universe of, of job opportunities. And going from, you know, each stage from junior developer to the senior developer on staff to I'm going to take a job somewhere else, you know, those are all different levels of challenge and you know it's kind of scary going into a new environment or new into a new role and i kind of watched them change as far as like how they felt that they're how they felt about themselves and how many risks they were going to take and i think once you've been exposed to taking a big leap like trying to start your own thing or doing your own consultancy or you know 
going across to a different department or going to a different company for a different job, once you've been exposed to that scary stuff, I think you're, you kind of get a bigger picture and you realize that the things before that seemed really scary, uh, suddenly you're like, oh, it's really not that big of a deal. You know, it's, yeah. and, and you're, and at that point you, you can start to, I think, feel a lot more comfortable about, you know, doing things that are riskier. Yeah, well, I mean, and you, you have to be willing to try things and you have to be able to, to try things and give yourself permission to, to go out and take a few risks. Um, you know, it's funny because this really parallels a lot of my work. Sometimes I'll have clients who want me to come in and bring a team and bring, bring my team and put together this plan that's going to drive automation through their entire organization and it's hundreds of people and whatever. And frankly, I just haven't seen that work yet. I haven't seen it work with uh, employers that I've had in the past. I haven't seen it work when I've been given um, kind of the opportunity to try to, to, to do that. Um, what I see is that small successes breed bigger successes and small successes breed confidence. And when you take a risk and you pick a tool and you go ahead and get stuff going with one particular team, you run into a bunch of problems that you can solve with that particular team. When you try to do it with 10 teams, it turns into more problems than you can handle and more voices and more people trying to handle it. The complexity is just so high. Um, so I don't know, I, I, I feel kind of the same way as it sounds like you do, that um, you, you take small risks at first and then you take bigger risks when you've been good on those smaller ones and then you take slightly bigger ones. Um, because you have that confidence built up from the past and that helps you in sitting down with a client and saying, yes, I can deliver X, Y, and Z uh, at the price that you're asking for, the one that we've agreed to, um, and we can move forward together on this and we're going to be successful. Yeah, so I mean, it's, it's kind of related to, to hiring devs because we essentially hired a, a development staff and you know, I've done development work for other people. so. If, and I've kind of guessed what it was like to be on the other side, but this was a, this was an eye-opening experience for myself in a, in a couple different ways. So uh, we have my wife and I had this, this site we were trying to develop, and I made a real conscious decision to not work on the site myself because I did the math and said, well, I, I could spend a bunch of time doing it myself, and uh, essentially I'm going to need someone else to do the design work, and why not see if they can do the development work as well? And uh, I thought this would be a good experience uh, for me just to see, can I delegate this out to somebody else and maybe I could learn a thing or two, kind of stretch myself a bit. So uh, we, we went to a design firm and they came back with the design and we were like, yeah, this looks good. Let's, let's go with it. And we decided to go ahead with the development option as well. And then uh, a couple of problems cropped up, one of which was uh, they kind of went off and they there was not a lot of communication about this is the status of the project and this is how it's going. I, we had some back and forth about the colors and, you know, layout options. And, you know, there's a lot of back and forth there, which is fine. But then there was like a month and a half where like nothing was going on as far as we could tell. And then one day they popped up and said, hey, well, we've got a development site here and you can take a look at what it is. And we started looking at it and we found some, some issues with it. And um, it's, uh, you know, it was kind of, it was kind of frustrating because, the, I guess the person that they had hired had a like a promo video uh, on YouTube talking about the big project this person had done for this last year, and um, 
so we, we were watching this this promo video and our site is one of the, the sites that uh, he had on there and he like he said this is the most critical part of the application it was like signing a guest book and my wife and I looked at each other and said that's not the most critical part of the website <laughs> and so <laughs> it was kind of weird it was like a, there's like obviously a lack of communication about what was supposed to be the most important part and you know he also mispronounced the website's name and it was just a lot of weird stuff like that so <laughs> And so we've got a we got a bunch of stuff that we came back and said you know these things are broken or these things don't work and it was clear that like they had not gone through the site and had looked at all the things that you know as far as, far as like styling and there was some spelling errors and you know forms on some of the pages weren't working and you know my my wife has a background where she does uh, she basically tries to organize test teams user acceptance testing for a large computer manufacturer. And I do automated testing, you know, with, with Paul and I've done the same work for my clients that I developed the sites for. So we were kind of going over this with like a, a fine tooth comb. We kind of know how to test sites and we found a bunch of problems and we kind of went back and they sent us an email saying, oh, well, this is a lot of work. And we, we said, well, what's, you know, maybe we should have instead of email, maybe we should have like a, some kind of project management tool. There's a lot of them out there that are free, and we eventually had to introduce them to Trello. And uh, it, it was thinking about it, and I thought that's kind of weird that that uh, that they didn't present a tool to us to kind of say like, here's how we're going to manage the project, and here's our cadence for communication, and every week you should uh, you should expect to hear back from us, and you know here's how you can check the status. Like none of that was established. So as far as like hiring someone else to do it, it's like you, you kind of get a, a sense for wow, you know, as somebody who pays to have a site developed, you really feel kind of helpless. And you're kind of at the mercy at the peop of the people who are developing the site, right? I mean, there's, I guess we could withhold money if we really were going to be jerks about it. But at the end of the day, I mean, until you pay and to have the site finished, the, that idea that you wanted to have developed is not going to be done. So it's, it kind of, I've, I think a couple things I picked up are if I was going to do this again, I, I would definitely want to see from the other person, if it's a team or a single developer, uh, a lot of things like, you know, this is kind of the pace that you should expect. And this is how I'll keep you updated on issues. And there'll be a certain point at which I'm going to expect you as the client to start to try to use the site. And, you know, at that point, um, I expect you to spend a certain amount of time vetting that the site looks according to, you know, what we both agreed to and that there's no major problems and, you know, there's a certain grace period for that. And then at a certain point, there's, we'll also have an agreement about the handoff. And um, I think, you know, if I'm going to hire a developer to do a specific project, I'm definitely going to want to see those things in place. Um, but as far as like hiring like a developer, like if I was going to run a consultancy where I wanted to have other developers working with me, I don't think I have enough experience to say what what I would be looking for, because in the past I've always done the hiring of developers as someone who's going to join a team that I was either a team lead for or a member of, and that's I think a completely different uh, set of here's what I'm looking for, versus I'm now this person's employer. And oh, I wonder you really? If, why, why is it so different? Well, I think part of it is that. Uh, like as a, as a team lead at, at Bigco, um, you know, I had some visibility into the money, but not that much. Like there was a budget for the team, 
So I kind of knew, okay, well, if you hire a developer, you can expect that, you know, there's a certain salary budget that the group can spend. And then there's this whole game that has to be played for figuring out uh, who gets what raises and, you know, it's that, that whole mess. But none of it is really like, okay, if I'm going to hire this developer, I expect this developer to have a certain return on investment. In other words, if I hire a guy for $60,000, I expect that his value to the company should be well north of $100,000, right? Uh, Or however that bet's going to break down. So if I'm hiring a developer to develop a site, I want the site to be done with the highest quality in the shortest amount of time for what I'm going to pay for. And I'm not really too concerned about the composition of their team as far as like uh, as like a, uh, a human resources perspective. Uh, at least that's how that's how I would think that it's kind of different. But I was wondering maybe you had some thoughts about. If you're I don't know. Hire... I mean, it, yeah, go ahead. There, there are a lot of there are a lot of parallels there. I mean, I, I think that it's I think that there are a couple different roles that we're jumping into and out of in your conversation here i mean for instance isn't it more like an executive to say i you know i've you've committed to the project i you've told me that you could do it i don't care who you hire or what you do or whatever you know you i i understand the budgets i understand the money aspect of it i've given you a budget i expect you to stick to it and i expect it to be done i mean that's that's kind of one role of like an executive but then on the other hand there's the people who who you hire, like if you're a team leader, if you're a, a manager within a, an organization, um, and you don't, you, like you said, you don't have that visibility. Well, there's no way that they could have the visibility that an executive would have, and they're also not going to have the same point of view, you know. Right. So now, in our in our particular businesses, we're both the ones running them, and uh, I, you know, we we do have that view, and it is um, it is a very uh, um, it's very mathematical, isn't it? You mean like breaking out the spreadsheet and then figuring out, okay, I can hire this person <laughs> if, you know. I mean, there's some of that, right? I mean, yeah. so you're looking through payroll. You're trying to make sure you can make payroll, and you have to think through all of the different um, costs associated with it and all the benefits and everything else. But then, you know, are your clients going to gonna meet the demand of this individual, and is, your, is this individual going to... Uh, give a payout that the client is happy with and and all that kind of stuff too and that's just a whole different thing than any team leader manager is going to have in almost every case i mean the only reason i mean there are only a few reasons that a first line manager would have that kind of viewpoint that kind of experience and wide range vision and and those are things like for whatever reason upper management doesn't see their skill set um, for whatever reason, they don't want to do those other jobs, you know. Um, but it's going to be very, very rare that someone has those abilities to see those things and works as a first line manager and does the hiring that you were talking about, don't you think? Yeah, I think I've only known one person who is in that position, and I think it's just because of the size of the company, um, you know, that they and they were also a member of the, the board of directors. So they kind of have a role where they were the CTO, they were the uh, development organization manager, they were on the board, um, you know, and so they they had no choice but to see all of those figures. And so I'll never forget, like, um, as the team grew, I remember one day um, we were looking to hire this one guy, and his guy was super sharp. I mean, just 
just probably the best hire I've ever seen as far as like just a pure technical talent. And uh, we were we and this uh, my boss we were kind of discussing whether we wanted to hire him and for how much. And he said, "Well, let me take a look at the spreadsheet." And so he had a spreadsheet with everybody's salaries. And he he turned to me and he said, "You know, I know he hasn't had work for seven months. I bet you we can get him real cheap." And he did. He <laughs> lowballed him. I mean, he and he took the offer, which was great for us. <laughs> I shudder to think what happened if he worked for the you know another company that was in the same marketplace. But uh, I mean, that was very. I mean, he knew. Like, he's like, I want to get this guy for as little money as possible every year, and I want him to to contribute to our product. So, I mean, he definitely had a spreadsheet and it had numbers on it. So, but some I mean, people are doing it, that. Yeah, and I mean, I guess I don't know. I, I don't know. So, I had an opportunity with a particular vendor recently for them to discount uh, the work that was going to be done, and it was for. Uh, I, I won't even I won't even get into the reasons, but they were going to discount it, and I wanted to make sure that they were happy doing the work. I I would rather the individual, and and I'm not saying I'm going to overpay for people. That's absolutely not yeah. what I'm saying at all. I'll I'll pay what I believe is a fair price for the talents that I'm for for the skill set or for the deliverables that I need from the individual, whether it's a vendor or an employer or whatever else. But I'm not going to lowball somebody because. Why do I want that relationship to start off on a negative foot? Like you, it's you know how hard it is to get off of that. Oh yeah, you know? like you, once you said it, it's yeah, it's super. Why, hard. why lowball somebody on yeah. that? I mean, now if you're going out and trying to buy a house and you want to lowball somebody, you may never ever meet the person that you're trying to buy from. They may never know who you were, so who cares, right? Yeah. But if it's a relationship where you're going to be working together for the next year, or two years, or four years, or ten years. I mean, why not? Why not make that um, something that that, that you, you're you're building upon excitement? Let's build upon excitement. Let's build upon where the actual market is, what we know we can afford, and let's keep this person happy and get them in here and get started and and you know and get going right away. Of course, pay is not always the only thing to do that. Um, bad negotiation can do that. Uh, benefits that don't make sense. Focusing on things that are not of value to the individual that um, you're trying to hire their services. All those things can matter, but um, I feel like we've gotten off the rails here. What else? <laughs> what else did you want to say? Uh, I, what you said about not lowballing people—it—it—it's very related. That um, in the hiring this design firm, we had talked to a bunch of different people, and uh, one guy who uh, we were considering, he, what he bid was about half of what we the people that we ended up going with bid for. And uh, I actually had a conversation with the guy after the fact, and I told him, I said, you know, to be honest, I think the re- one of the reasons why we didn't pick you is because your your cost was half the cost of everybody else. And that made me think, you know, hmm, why was he so low, right? So it's like, don't don't lowball yourself, right? Don't. Uh, don't just think, well, I, I I can get away with charging this risk little. I don't think that sends a great message. I don't think you're doing yourself a, you know any favors either. And also, even at that price, um, the price we eventually hired for, I, I think they underbid as well. I don't think they, I don't think they they realized the complexity that was involved in getting this site developed. Um, I think they were dipping their toes into a, a, some waters they had not swum deeply in. Uh, that's just my thought, but. I don't know if that's actually the case, but it sort of kind of feels like it. But those, I thought those were related to, yeah, don't lowball people. Don't lowball yourself. 
Yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, so did you want to talk about chat clients? Yeah, briefly, because I know we're bumping up against uh, all right, so, 40 minutes. So what is the deal? You put something on Twitter for all of your are, – are you up to 20? <laughs> are you on 20 followers now or what? Uh, I think I think I've got like 450 followers and 425 oh, of them are cow. bots. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I have a bot army. That They're hurts. waiting for me to mention things like Mazda and Windex. <laughs> That hurts. So yeah, uh, you're JD Jeffers on Twitter, uh, right? So Skype versus Slack. If you're gonna have a team chat tool, why would you pick Slack over something like Skype or even Google Hangouts? And I think the main reason is that um, Slack allows you to put a lot of different information flows and point them into Slack, and then kind of organize how that shows up. And it also makes it really easy for people on a team to opt in or opt out of uh, communications with each other or with specific people. So it's got a lot of stuff going for it that to me just I haven't seen in any other tool. And it could be ignorance. Maybe I haven't used enough of Skype. Um, and the fact that Skype is owned by Microsoft has nothing to do with my dislike of it. Uh, but um, I, I haven't seen the same capabilities in, Slack, in, in Skype that I have seen in Slack. So I'm really prejudiced for Slack. Um, yeah. Well, and I think, you know, part of this might be, um, and, and I, I don't necessarily agree with you, just so, um, so you know, <laughs> if anybody followed that conversation on Twitter, you could tell that I didn't agree. But, I mean, my, my, my comment was, I don't care if people are using stone tablets with hier hieroglyphics on them to communicate, um, as long as they're having effective communication. But I think that is, um, I think the, basis of that argument is my belief that a chat system is there for communication between individuals. And I think you and I may see those things differently. The first time that I saw Slack and there was this huge feed of broken builds or passing builds or whatever in it, I, I was like, oh my gosh, and like updates on every single bug in the world and things like that. Um, to me, that's not valuable. I mean, now, Information coming from systems when I need it that helps me is absolutely valuable. But random information just coming at me in a chat session, to me, that was that was really weird. And I think that comes down to maybe where the usage is and how you filter those things out. And maybe you're able to do a better job of it than me. But personally, like if I'm talking on Slack and we have a, a chat session where everybody's supposed to be paying attention anyway, but then we've got all these messages from a particular system, um, I find that a lot of people miss what you ask them. I find that people just don't read the whole chat session. Yeah, if you if you have a lot of that stuff being piped into that that room, yeah, which is why you should have a separate Slack channel for, for example, uh, build results or test results. So if you need to go check that, you can. I mean. So you would so you would arrange those things that way is yeah. what you're saying hypothetically if you had you would have some kind of uh, chat room where it only had builds. Yeah, because I mean you could just click right over that and see what the status is. Uh, and I also uh, turn off the desktop notifications for the most part for Slack uh, because for the most part my job is not to um, I don't I usually don't have a role these days where I'm in a, like a DevOps role where it's you know, super critical that I see. An emergency notification for something that's gone wrong. Usually, I'm looking like at builds. You know how the builds doing? Oh, it looks good. 
you know, that's something you can respond to in hours or minutes, not like I need to get to it right away. Uh, and so, yeah, I will pipe a lot of that uh, feedback stuff into a specific channel. So it's easier. To, I can go look at it when I want to. But like you, like you said, if I'm in the middle of a conversation, it's not all that helpful to have, you know, this, you know, fire hose stream of, you know, Jenkins reports. Right. Uh, or whatnot. <laughs> and, so maybe, and maybe that's where we differ. Maybe I haven't used it enough and maybe I don't know um, enough of the specifics about how to use it. But for me, signal to noise, noise ratio is something that's very important and I want a really high one. Um, I, I don't like a bunch of noise, and by that I mean um, some random build that doesn't affect my life. I don't. I don't need to see the status of that, or uh, that every. I, I don't need that the updates on every single Jira ticket that's ever been created and whether or not they've been modified. You yeah. know. Um, well, so to I, me, that just makes the noise really high and the signal really low. Yeah, I think I think the the goal for Slack was to kill email as the default way to communicate with people. Um, and I, you know, email is, it's, it's a well-known technology, it, you know, it's, it, it's there, you know, it's like, uh, it's like sauce on a pizza. It's there. You shouldn't have to do too much with it. Uh, but, uh, I think the creators of Slack were like, yeah, email's got some issues and this is our, our answer to it. So I think the other stuff about Slack is that it's, I think it's, it's searchable, I think, if you get the enterprise version. Like if you're paying money for Slack, they'll store messages for a long time. Uh, and it's easy to figure out who said what at what point. You can post documents. You can post uh, links, uh, you know. Okay. I, I, I hear you. I like those things about uh, about Slack. There might be a lot that I don't understand. So anyway, this is Reflection as a Service. We hope it's been fun. And uh, once again, we're going to have Mary Thorne, pill the three pillars of agile testing with us on the next episode make sure to get with us for that it's been james jeffers and paul merrill reflection as a service you can find us on twitter at reflection aas thank you very much and we'll talk to you next time